I'm Dan, and if you're new to homebrewing, so am I. Welcome to my adventures in homebrewing. <laughs> hey everybody, it's that time once more to go around the sun one more time and have a beer or two along the way. This week, we are very fortunate to have two guys who are... Honestly, I've kept me laughing although a lot of the time right now, even just getting caught up. Uh, we have Denny Khan and Drew Beecham on the show this week. Boys, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, I need to say thank you to uh, Mandy uh, Naklich, who was on the show last week. Very coolly, we talked about beer glasses and what the beer glasses can do for you and a little bit about their history and a lot. Personally, I like I've been, we were both of us were saying it's to get from point A to point B. So point D being from the table, point B being your mouth and down your throat. So guys, again, thank you very much. So I'm a little starstruck because I've seen you guys <laughs> on YouTube. Yeah, Drew's going, who the hell are you guys talking about? Yeah. And uh, okay, you're beer famous. How's that? Yeah, there you go, man. Okay, that's, that was, that's what Randy said, okay. Randy's wife. <laughs> that and $5 will get you a latte at Starbucks. That's right. Oh, wow. You guys got it cheaper than we do here in Canada. Here's like six or seven. What are you, guys, what are you guys got going on down there? Exchange rate, man. Oh, yeah, yeah. Exchange rate. Okay, here we go. So um, I've been watching these guys on YouTube for a little while now and also been listening to their podcast. And, you know, it is amazing what you guys have accomplished and what you guys do with beer. And I'd be interesting to hear a little bit more what you guys can do with beer for experimentation and things like that. But before we dive into that, let's uh, go eeny, meeny, mine. Okay, well, because we'll, we'll, the first person was on was Denny. So we'll get Denny to introduce himself and tell us a little bit about himself. Then we'll go on to Drew. Okay. Oh, you're in the I, fire now, bud. <laughs> I think that's the way it should be with me going first. Um, I'm, my name is Denny Khan. I'm I'm an old fart. I've been brewing for, uh, well, 23 years now. And let me see, what's the date today? Today is March 12th when we're recording this. One week from today will make 23 years since I brewed my first batch. Uh, I just brewed batch number 576. So I've kind of got obsessed with it. Um, I've been on the governing committee of the American Humbers Association for 15 years. Uh, before all this stuff hit, uh, Drew and I used to uh, be lucky enough to travel all over the world talking to people about homebrewing. And as far as I know, I'm the only homebrewer who has a strain of brewing yeast named after me. So really? Why yeast, for, yeah, why yeast 1450, Denny's favorite. Oh, cool. Well, I have to look for that. Well, the, yeah. I think that's no longer quite the case now with all the, the new Kvike strains out there being named after farms and farmers. And yeah, but, you're, but you're the only a, American Humber. That's right. There you go. <laughs> and he's Drew. Yeah. If you can't tell, we've been around each other for a good long while. We actually oh, sound yeah. more like, oh, I'd never know that. Yeah. We actually sound more <laughs> like a married couple than married couples do. <laughs> that's right. You guys sound like I'm back in battalion. What are you guys talking about? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's really funny. Before we started the podcast, uh, and one of the things that gave us the idea to start it was we were uh, down in Brazil to go to a conference there, and they were going to take us out to see some of the sites. So we were on a bus uh, with like a local homebrew club and stuff getting ready to go, and Drew and I start doing our usual bickering picking on each other things and one of the guys turns around and says to one of the other ones it's like the books have come to life <laughs> <laughs> and, and i want to stress for everybody we in no way shape or form plan out any of this shtick this is just exactly no. who we are so yep uh, yep okay <laughs> that works for me as long as <laughs> as long as you can take as good as you give we're good to go <laughs> oh yeah man no problem all right yeah there, there have only been relatively few tears uh, yeah, no, that's right. But, uh, I got over it. <laughs> <laughs> Such a crybaby. Jeez. <laughs> a, little, a, little tap, a little tap with a baseball bat and he breaks down. Oh, wow. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is going to be a fun one. This is awesome. All right, Drew, you're up next, brother. Uh, yeah, so I'm Drew Beecham, and I am actually about a week past my, uh, what is this, uh, 22nd anniversary of being a homebrewer, so been doing it for a while. Uh, I do not know how, I have zero clue how many batches of beer I've made. I am not nearly that meticulous about note-taking, 
I, I have recipes scattered on little sheets of paper hidden in the garage. I have recipes scattered in different parts around the internet. Uh, I have no clue how many batches of beer I've made, but I've made a lot. Um, a lot. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> more, more than any rational human being ever should have. Um, That's what my wife tells me all the time because I'm constantly brewing almost every other weekend. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and, and so like when I first started homebrewing, I, I started homebrewing in my two-bedroom apartment in North Hollywood, California with a little gas stove, and I was brewing five-gallon batches of beer, and I was working as a, my day, my day, day life is actually as an engineer, although actually nowadays I'm a director, so I'm less useful, um, and the, um, I would come home at like, say, 6.30, 7 o'clock at night, and I would fire up the stuff on the stove, and like, yeah, I mean, I was... I was brewing every week for at least two to three years when I first started doing it on my stove from about 6.30 at night to one o'clock in the morning. And that would just be how I would, how I'd brew. That's dedication. Yeah, didn't have a girlfriend at the time. Uh, That explains a lot. (laughs) That explains a lot. (laughs) Nowadays, nowadays, my wife very fortunately kicks me out to the garage. She's like, don't you have to make a batch of beer? Yeah, yeah. So... I got back into homebrewing about two and a half years ago after taking a hiatus called my kids. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can do it, man. Yeah. So when I when I was do- doing it, I was just like the, the things like Grandfather and RoboBrew hadn't existed yet. So it was always on the stovetop and you had the plastic carboys or the plastic bucket. But the kit my wife had got me for the holidays didn't have like the, the lid or an airlock. So over the top one, uh, multiple layers of saran wrap, a few bungee cords. <laughs> let's let it do its thing. Then the next time you get toddlers going, what's this? Poking the fingers through the plastic. Oh man. Next next thing the dog's the dog comes over. Oh, there's a hole. Nose goes in the beer. And then you're like, <laughs> um, why is it growing mushrooms? I, I really don't know what I've done wrong. <laughs> then you open it up completely and you're like, not gonna take a chance with this and down the drain it goes and you're like oh man and then you're like i'm taking a break (laughs) (laughs) yeah that that could be a bit much Uh, i i got into brewing when my son had uh, already grown up and moved away so i i got to uh, bypass all that nice and i and i got into brewing the first actual batch of beer i brewed was in 1994 when I was a, a college-age kid living in a fraternity house in Boston. And the first batch of beer actually came out surprisingly drinkable. Wow. Not too bad. Not bad second at all. Batch of beer, uh, second batch of beer. For a bunch of people going to a technical university with a bunch of people who understand microbiology, boy, did we screw that thing up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I was, I was lucky, man. Uh, my first batch of beer uh, came out really well it was a, a basically a pale ale kit a lot like sierra nevada pale ale came from a place up in seattle called pike brewing which is gone now but uh, at that point it was the oldest homebrew shop in the u.s it had been like oh, an nice. operation since the 30s and it it turned out really really nicely and i still remember the first time i opened a bottle and it went and i thought that i'd done magic you know yeah, yeah. it was it, it was just so amazing and it tasted good and you know i'm afraid a monster was born and i i hope my wife doesn't regret giving me that brewing kit yeah my wife is like anything that keeps you out of trouble and out of my hair i'm fine <laughs> yeah man as long as as long as i don't interfere with her gardening time it's cool for her it's like as long as i'm not in her space when she's doing because she has her own small business from home and she does uses zoom to talk to the people she teaches and things like that and she says as long as you're not in the house when you're making beer or if you're coming in and out you're quiet i really don't care i mean (laughs) all right cool man well at least you know where you stand yeah i stand like six feet outside the house it's all good it's it's what else is new in my life well see and and to that point my wife and i actually have separate offices and separate buildings here on our on our house site oh wow you know i'm i'm here in the main house and we have a little we have a little mother-in-law suite in the back and that's where she teaches out of so yeah It, it turns out i think one of the keys to a happy marriage is separate spaces yes absolutely and sometimes other continents, which is what I found after multiple deployments to overseas. 
Yeah, I, I think sometimes my wife would be happy if I deployed overseas. <laughs> so, oh man, oh, this is going to be a fun show. All right, so we are going to talk about things to experiment with beer. So I am going to say I am going to be making uh, a uh, a bourbon stout very very soon, and I have friends who who own um, escarpment laboratories here in Ontario. Oh, oh, what a great bunch of guys! They're all, Richard and those guys are fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So I reached out to them and I said, "Hey, look, guys, this is what I'm looking at. What I'm looking at doing. Uh, I was wondering if I could take you up in your offer to get some yeast to experiment with." And they're like, "Sure. What do you need?" I said, "Well, I'd like to try your your Irish ale yeast." And they're like, "Okay, that's that'll be that'll be good for a bourbon stout." And I'm like, "Okay, great." I said, "Well, what other strain do you want?" What do you mean? Well, if you're gonna do an experiment, take two. Okay, so I'm going to be doing like 10 gallons of bourbon stout with two different yeasts. But what else can you do for experiments other than just experimenting with hops and, and, and yeasts? I mean, what else can you really do? Oh, man, there's process. I mean, basically, it's a very personal thing. It depends on what you care about learning, you know? Um, it's, it's easy. I mean, you know, one of my first ones that I did was a decoction experiment, you know, where I, I did a batch of beer. <laughs> Drew's shaking his head. Uh, I did, I did uh, one batch decocted, one batch non-decocted. I got a bunch of other people from all over the world to do that. We put together tasting panels and tried to decide if decoction made a difference that people preferred in a beer, right? Okay. It, it's not, does it make a difference, right? Because it, people seem to get too hung up on things that don't matter. Does decoction make a difference? Maybe, maybe so. But, you know, we're not sitting there just analyzing the beers and, and measuring them. We're drinking them, right? Mm, exactly. So, so the question then becomes, does decoction make a difference that makes people prefer the decocted beer more? So that was kind of our the, the first study that we did. Uh, I, I think Drew has done something kind of similar. Oh, yeah. I've done a couple of decoction type experiments because I always want to be convinced that decoctions work the, the effort. Yeah. Because, really? Um, <laughs> it just seems well, so, much it, more, it's so much more effort. Well, yeah, but, I mean, that's the thing. I, like to me, it's like I would like to there's there's something morally pure about the idea that if you put more work into it, then there's a reason to do the more work. Okay. I'm not convinced about that. You know, it, it, as Denny's fond of saying, homebrewing is one of the few hobbies out there where people are convinced the harder you work, the better things are. Um, right. And I think in very limited cases, there's a reason to do, do decoction. Like if you're using traditional undermodified malts and all that sort of good stuff. Yeah. But if you're coming anywhere near like modern ingredients and modern processes, uh, unless you're trying to make the world's lightest Pilsner that actually has some more character in it, I don't think decoction is going to make a damn bit of difference in what you do. See, I, I'll admit it. I'm lazy. And, 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 and I go by, I go by the, uh, the adage work smarter, not harder. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, Drew and I, you know, each call ourselves the laziest brewer in the world and we would like argue about it, but that would take too much energy and we're too mm -hmm. lazy to do that. <laughs> 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 you're you know, sleeping but, but but a lot of the experimentation that i have done through the years has been driven purely by laziness right i want to know like drew said what works and if it's worth the effort uh you know my motto is make the best beer possible with the least effort possible while having the most fun possible okay and and, and by the way also it's all well and also very very importantly that's also very personal, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, one of the one of the places where I think a lot of people get in trouble with the idea of experimentation, like either the stuff like we publish, the stuff that other homebrewers publish, the stuff that Brewosophy publishes and whatnot, is that these are gospels of truth. They are the right way to brew, but the very important part that gets missed a lot of times is they may not be the right way to brew for you. Yeah. So. <laughs> If yeah. you're the sort of person who is insane and loves to work hard, <laughs> decoctions may make the brewing process more enjoyable for you, in which case you have my blessing to go forth right. and decoct every batch of beer you ever make. 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's the whole idea right there is that everybody gets to decide for themselves what is worth it. Uh, my own brewing philosophy over the years has really evolved. Uh, when I started, I was very much into the science behind it and I needed to find out how everything worked, uh, that kind of thing. These days, I kind of feel like I've absorbed the science and come out the other side. So what really is my reason for brewing is because I enjoy the process more than anything else, you know? Uh, sure, it's great to have the beer and it's great to have a great beer that you make yourself. But for me, it's like the making of the beer is really, really what does it for me more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me. I got back into brewing because I work at a craft brewery out here where I like five minutes from where I live here in Ottawa. And it's it, it inspired me to just dive in full tilt and not go the route with a lot of my friends who were saying, well, you got to learn how you do DME, LME, and then work your way up. And I was like, why? Uh, I know, <clears throat> excuse me, I know the, the basic, the basic process right now for having worked in a brewery now for the last two years, you know, mill, grain in mill, mill, really hot water, stir it around for an hour, drain it, boil it, chill it, ferment it, and hope that God, you don't blow anything up along the way. It, you know, it's, it's not rocket science. It's, I'd say it's more or less an experiment in patience. And I admit, there's a lot of times where my patients go out the, okay, I have colorful language. So if I say anything that offends you, please let me know. <laughs> I, don't know I don't know what the fuck not, you're talking about. Not, uh, <laughs> all right. So my patience goes out the fucking window. And um, there's times where I've, I, I've forgotten, oh, okay, I got to make sure I turn the pump off and I take off the recirculation. I'm like, oh, it's a wart fountain. Turn off the pump. <laughs> So, I mean, shit happens, but I guess when you're looking at what are some really cool, easy experiments people can do when they're, when they're brewing? I mean, I know you're saying it, and then I totally agree with you when you say it's totally a, a personal thing, but if someone wants to try to start experimenting, what, what's an easy way to start other than just say ingredients? Well, well the, I, the problem is the reason why people always get drawn to ingredients is I think that brewers a lot of homebrewers get drawn into into beer making from a culinary mindset and True. you know so if you're if you have a culinary mindset then ingredients are a very natural way to start and they're very compelling so it's it's hard it's it's not hard to understand why everybody obsesses over ingredients because that's like the thing that you're most directly impactful with mm -hmm. but i think you can pick up a lot of that knowledge along the way just by brewing okay yeah you know and you know, and, and ingredients too. I mean, that's one that people have to be careful they do it because, you know, the, the normal homebrew tendency is to throw 40 ingredients into a beer, right? And simple, simple recipes can be really great. And there's a lot of people, uh, Drew especially, who says, you know, simplify your recipes as much as possible. Yeah, th this, is one, our, this is one of our disagreements. This is one of our disagreements. Okay. Is he calling you simple? But it's it's only a minor disagreement. We're, well, yeah, we we both get to the same place. We just take it from an episode. Yeah, yeah. We, I think I think we're but we are approaching the same goal, but from different areas. Drew's idea is to start with the simplest recipe you can possibly come up with. My idea is to use as many ingredients in whatever quantity as it takes to achieve your goal, but make know what each and every one of them is doing and that there's a reason for it to be there you know mm -hmm. don't just like put in crystal 60 because every recipe you look at has crystal 60 in it you know uh, know what it's going to do so to that end if you do want to experiment with ingredients make sure i mean my way of doing it is to have like a recipe i brew it i see it and it's not quite there <laughs> I pick one thing and only one thing to change at a time. Yes, yes. There is no mercy here with you guys. I love this. <laughs> one's talking, the other one's putting the fingers to yeah. his head saying, shoot yeah. me now. This is what the, what the hell? <laughs> Again, we act more like a married couple than a lot of married couples out there. Um, 
Well, because yeah, well, right. Well, because is any way of brewing that way that that iterative well, process? Not me. Okay, so you just yeah. rather keep I it mean, as simple as possible. What I, what, yeah, I mean, to me, it's well. I mean, Drew Drew is like more of a one and done kind of guy. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, where, I have. Well, I have to. I have to move on to new. Not films. like that. No. Yeah, you know. Whereas, like, where my my rye IPA recipe, I'd like. I think I brewed twelve or thirteen test batches of that before I got it. My American Mild was like eight or nine test batches before I got it, and. Drew, Drew isn't like that. It's like, you know, uh, if his beer turns out like shit, it's like, oh, well. No, if it turns out like, oh, shit, I'm like, eh, well, good to know. Next beer. I you. won't do that. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah I won't. You know, and, and again, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of guy who tends to brew the same recipes over and over. Uh, I, I will get a, a hankering for some beer and I'll decide to brew it. And I'll pull out my recipe notebook uh, to see what the recipe looks like and find out that I have brewed that beer almost exactly a year before. Mm -hmm. Because at certain times of the year, I get the craving for certain beers. Whereas Drew is like always on to the next new thing. Those young kids, you know, man. Denny is more of a man of tradition and respect and cycles. Respect the respect the knowledge of the seasons and make sure you honor your fathers. <laughs> I think he's calling you old now, yeah. Denny. <laughs> that, that's okay, man. I deserve it. <laughs> so I can understand what what you're saying about, about pulling out your recipe book and things like that because um, I have an oat beer recipe that I live by and it's mm -hmm. fantastic and. I think it was last month or the month before I had a uh, horse Dornbush on the show and he was just like, okay, yeah, yeah. And I was telling him what I did. And, and I said, yeah, for some reason, I'm like, even though it, the recipe says it's supposed to be like, like five and a half percent, I'm hitting like six and a half percent. And he's like, what the you hell do? are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm, I'm pressure fermenting it. You're what? No. Oh, well, yeah. I can turn the beer around in like three days. He's just not impossible. And I'm, I'm telling you, I can turn it around in three days. And he said, well, let me see your recipe. And he says, oh, okay, get rid of the two row and just make it all Munich. I'm like, all right. So now I have to go and try that now because I haven't had a chance to. So I have uh, an, an alt beer was the first beer I ever won an award for. And it was like the first all grain batch that I ever brewed. Uh, and back then, nobody was brewing alt, so it was easy to brew alt and enter contests and win because it was like, you know, there were like maybe two of them there. Yeah. Well, um, Denny, but, Denny's old enough yeah. that alt beer was actually called new back then. Oh, <laughs> oh very good. <laughs> Is that kind of like saying when he but knew, he knew I, a Centurion was a person, not a tank? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> my son <laughs> um i have i have what i call my americanized alt beer that uh, uses uh you know nine pounds of, of dark munich and you know like munich 10 and three pounds of pills and uh, spalt hops and you know it's it's not a lot like most german munichs it's kind of made with like a, a, a most german alts rather it's, it's kind of made with the Zoom uh, in that I, I kind of like hop it up. Uh, but on the other hand, yeah, I'm like you, man. Mine comes out like to be like 6.4 to 6.6%. I don't care. I'm not, I mean, you know, when, when I enter it in a competition, it does well because the judges don't know. And yeah. it's, it's, it's the way I like. And, you know, when I was developing my, my American mild recipe, I found that it is, way easier to make a flavorful beer with a lot of ingredients than with a few ingredients okay so what are some of the things you guys like to experiment with when you're brewing do you like is it equipment is it ingredients is it yeah is it to see who can push the other person's button yeah, oh no we do yeah. that naturally for fun yeah, that is, yeah. <laughs> For me, I think a lot of it is process driven. Uh, you know, I like to find out about what differences in process make in terms of the final beer. Mm -hmm. uh, ingredients, sometimes, I mean, we're in the enviable position where we get sent a lot of different uh, new ingredients to play with and try out. 
um, and and we do that, but I still revert to my tried and true recipes with the ingredients I, I know and understand. Uh, and in case of, for me, for ingredient experimentation, takes mainly the form of looking through the 40 pounds of hops in my hop freezer and go, okay, what am I going to dry hop with this time? Because uh, otherwise, I'll tend to make the same, you know, I, I make like a lot of IPAs because that's what my wife likes. And so I'll make like, you know, 10, 15 gallons of IPA split it into two or three batches and it'll be all, all the same except for the dry hops. Yeah, no that's about as it, Yeah, no that's IPAs about as in this house. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. They, they're, they're okay, but, you know, I'm a sucker for a good British beer. We'll make a British IPA. Yeah, yeah see. Um, <laughs> See, and then for me, Drew, Drew, on the other hand, yeah, yeah, and for me, like I'm, I'm driven. I'm actually when when I'm doing ingredients, I'm actually driven more by yeast than I am by okay. by hops or by by malts. Although I've been having a lot of fun playing around with craft malts, uh, those yeah. uh, those turn out to actually have some really nice impacts, and they do actually change part of your process as well. Really? Yeah, they do. It, well, because. The thing to think about is all of the big malt that you get, right? You know, like all the, like the RAR, the Great Western, like whoever your big maltsters are that, mm -hmm. that you'll be able to drag out from BSG or country malt or whoever, those, those malts have all been so carefully formulated to be easy to use in a big brew house. Mm -hmm. uh, to, and like, you know, all your pale or pills malt has for a large portion of it, not all of it, but a large portion has been essentially designed to have as much enzyme as possible and as little flavor as possible. Um, and so, and also lower protein counts. Right. Now, one of the things, one of the things that, that I've noticed in playing around with these craft monsters is, you know, the controls aren't quite the same, right? It's like going from, say, you know, Budweiser or uh, Molson to, or, uh, to, you know, to like your local craft brewery. And you'll see like there's a difference in control that happens there. So with these craft malts, what I'm finding is that one, there's more variability. Two, there's more flavor. And the one that's actually interesting that you do kind of have to compensate for sometimes is they're usually more protein, uh, which, you know, leads to some different flavors and some different haze characteristics. And so that's one place in, in ingredients I've been playing around with. Obviously, process-wise, I think the big change right now for a lot of homebrewers has been what can you do with fermentation in terms of using all these quake strains, you know, all these crazy, crazy little bugs that can operate at supposedly at 95 plus degrees and produce a clean beer. Um, like, in 36 uh, hours. Yeah, in, yeah, in, in, in yeah. 2.3 femtoseconds. Um, <laughs> not that I actually agree that they are necessarily that clean when they're running that hot. Um, but I've been playing around with those just to see and understand that world of farmhouse, right? Because that's one of my big things is the farmhouse beers. Mm -hmm. So I find actually my experimentation in terms of ingredients is driven more by, by microbiology, even though I'm not a big sour guy. So I don't tend to do a lot of, I don't tend to do a ton of mixed cultures beers, um, but more by yeast. And then also some of the process changes, like playing around with fermentation, like trying to see, okay, for instance, with the quake strains, everybody talks about running those super hot. Right. And everybody's jonesed about it because, hey, this means I don't have to worry so much about my temperature control. No, you but don't. <laughs> I, what, what, I, what I've been playing around with is trying to see, okay, if I do have temperature control, because I got a couple of glycol jacketed fermenters hanging out in my garage, I don't have to worry about temperatures until I'm in the middle of summer here in LA yeah. and it hits, you know, 115 in there. Um, I forget what that is in Celsius. Sorry. Um, it's, a, it's, 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 yeah, it's like, like 30 or some odd. Stupid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's called damn hot. Yeah. Um, and even though, I, so I have that, and so I'm not necessarily obsessed with the idea of like, can I push this thing to 95 degrees? I find a lot of homebrewers are trying to, like, obsessed about like how many IBUs can I get, how many, how, how big my gravity is, you know, how hot can I permit this, how fast can I permit this, how long, how short is my lag time? I don't care about that. What I care about is the end product. And so I've been playing around a lot with with the quikes is actually saying how low I can go in terms of the temperature and still get either some of the quite characteristics that people care about. Like, I mean, a lot of people out there say, take like the, the Voss strains there are there. Mm. Those produce that sour orange characteristic. And if you're making an IPA or a hazy IPA, for instance, you want that sour orange character. It actually makes sense in the beer. But if you push the yeast lower and slower, do you avoid that sour orange character? Can you make something 
that is not a super orangey, super hoppy type beer with that strain and not have it read as a, a quake beer. And okay. I just found out the other day, or not the other day, but a couple of weeks ago now, um, that one of our bigger breweries uh, to the east of us here in LA, a place called Hangar 24, they actually, they brought in a, a former brewer for BrewDog, like the guy who headed up a lot of their international operations. And he's actually switched all of their beers, which includes their IPAs, their porter, they have a, a, an orange wheat that they do, okay. a couple of other beers. He switched all of those over to doing fermentation. Okay, you, you froze for a sec, so we lost you there on the last part. He switched them over to doing what? <clears throat> He's frozen. Uh-oh, uh-oh. I shouldn't uh, be. Uh, you are now. Oh, there you go. So what was the? What did he switch them all over to? A Kvike? Yeah, to, to Voss. Oh, wow. So all of his beers now are done with Voss Kvike, including his porter. And it was actually really interesting to me because I tasted it and I didn't get that sour, sour orange character out of it. Wow. And so that's, that's a, and part of that's his process control. So a lot of what I'm playing around with in terms of process is that. Um, other, uh, other places where uh, Denny and I have both been playing around with process, because we are both also hop heads, um, we've been playing around with uh, dry hopping, right? You know, yeah. like everybody's obsessed with how much, how much hop character can you drive into things? And so we've both been playing with shorter, cooler dry hopping. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like doing, um, Denny, what you've been running at 38? Uh, yeah, any place from 35 to 38. Basically, I, I crash the beer for a while. I dump all the trube uh, and then throw in my, my dry hops for 48 hours between 35 and 38 degrees. Uh, and I, I don't use the tremendous amounts that uh, a lot of people are too because my screwing around has kind of verified, at least for my taste buds, what Tom Shellhammer found, which is more than eight grams per liter of hops, uh, is going to be counterproductive. Uh, it, it can actually get more vegetal than, than fruity or something like mm -hmm. that. So, I mean, that uh, dry hops, I should say, not hops in general. So I've been, I've been, you know, generally keeping my dry hop low, I mean, you know, in the maybe like max out of five ounces for a five gallon batch, which is still an, an insanely large amount. But, you know, I'm seeing people like put in a pound of hops. Uh, I'm seeing people do a lot of hopping when they pitch the yeast. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I don't care for that at all. Um, I, I do it short and cold. Uh, the, the short cold method eliminates the extraction of a lot of polyphenols that add harshness to the beer. The short time actually helps to retain more oils in the beer because uh, testing has shown that after 48 to 72 hours, you've gotten about all the oils out of the hops that you're going to get. And at that point, they actually start reabsorbing the oils and you get a lot more of the of the vegetal character from the hops. Right. And, you know, so so that's that's what we've been playing around with. I, me, especially, I've been really working on subtle tweaks to that technique to find what's going to work best for me. And especially because that technique is best suited to hops that are uh, high in linalool and geraniol. Uh, what I'm trying to learn about also is how your dry hop techniques relates to the exact variety of hop that you have and the composition of its oils. Okay. Yeah, if you haven't been listening to the podcast recently, uh, it's, it's become very apparent that all the stuff we know about hops is going to get really screwy really quick as people try and assign numerical approaches to what, what it is that they exactly want to dial we were Just yeah. before so. this, we were talking to a couple of guys at Grainfather because they have implemented the, uh, the MIBU uh, uh, calculation for, for deciding how many uh, IBUs are in a, in a batch of beer. And it really takes into account a lot of things uh, in terms of late hopping and stuff like that. And they have even now started reaching the point where they're beginning to learn how to account for the polyphenols extracted during dry hopping that give you the impression of bitterness, even if you don't get any IBUs. Okay. It's calculus, y'all. <laughs> okay. 
army guy. Math and me do not go hand in hand. <laughs> oh, come on. I, so, I, blow, so I blow things up in place. That's it. <laughs> yeah, man. Hey, didn't didn't you watch Stripes, man? They had to use oh, math God. to calculate uh, the, uh, no, the, the mortar. Denny, obviously, he's not an artillery guy. Uh, <laughs> No, let's see. I did seven years in the infantry and uh, got to be a paratrooper for se for seven years. Uh, so Ooh, I fell, nice. So I fell on my head a lot, um, which yeah. explains a lot. Uh, then I moved over to military intelligence. Yes, it's an oxymoron. <laughs> Jumbo shrimp, military <laughs> intelligence. That's it. it is an oxymoron. <laughs> but um, I, I understand what you guys are saying about uh, the hops and, and experimenting with, with modified and unmodified grains and things like that. Um, I, part of my thing is I've been experimenting mainly with pressure fermentation. Like <laughs> how far can I push it before it has an adverse effect or how much pressure do I really need to have? How much is the max? How much is the, the lowest? And what I'm finding is, is that if you go above, say, like 12, it gets a really weird kind of gassy, funky flavor. Mm -hmm. And if you have it too low, you get a lot of nasty esters because the CO2 is not there to suppress it all. Um, but I, I will say that um, with the pressure fermentation is that your yeasts, it really doesn't matter what yeast you use. Um, you can use an, a lager yeast. You can use ale yeasts. Even though I get told, why are you doing that with an ale yeast? It's meant to do it with lager yeast. It's meant to do lagers at warmer temperatures and suppress. I'm like, well, if you could do it with one, why not do it with the other? It's the tomatoes, tomato. I mean, well, and, and see, man, that's that is a really good way to approach it because people are telling you you can't do it, and so you want to find out if you can and how. Yeah. Uh, I, when we were in Australia a couple of years ago, uh, Chris White was down there at the same conference, and he did uh, a presentation on pressure fermentation there, um, and then I spent some time talking to him about it afterwards, and. What really became apparent to me was it can be a very finicky process. Yeah. Uh, and very and very strain dependent. Yeah. Yeah. Yeast strain and pressure just vary and the results yeah. can be real variable also. I mean, this yeast strain needs to run at this pressure and you get these results. Mm -hmm. um, and so I decided at that point that it was too finicky for me. I'm not in a hurry to crank out a batch of beer. So I just I decided that, you know, okay, I've learned what I need to learn about it. And that is not one of those things that I want to get into mm. personally. Uh, a lot of people are doing it and a lot of people are doing it just for the learning experience. Uh, be, being old, I guess I'm a bit set in my ways. Drew might be able to verify that. I have no comment. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I plead the fifth. I, I know what I like and, and I know what I'm interested in. If I would have seen that pressure fermentation had something to offer me, I would have started playing with it. But after talking to Chris and seeing his presentation, uh, I decided like, this is, this is just not one of those things for me. And that's, it's homebrewing. It's a damn hobby, yeah. you know, <clears throat> do what you want to do and what makes sense and what makes it fun for you. The whole thing is about fun. If you're not having fun, then you're doing it wrong. I have a blast every time I'm brewing, but the, my, my problem is, is that my beer is usually gone within uh, a week because family out to the east of me are taking it in like five gallon ah. shots. <laughs> So Susie, uh, one, you got that problem. Yeah, I got. So what do you have on? What do you have on tap? Well, I've got five gallons. Of, okay, we'll take it. Okay, well, I guess I should have made ten. <laughs> you need you need to brew bigger batches. See, I tried to convince my wife to let me buy a twenty gallon system and to put like a two twenty volt uh, outlet in the garage, and I got politely told, "Fuck no." <laughs> let's say that, that's just the compromise aspect of marriage yeah happy wife happy life yeah i totally been married for like 22 years now yeah i totally get that <laughs> totally totally yeah. get that yeah. and Man. and i mean like for me i i've i've played around a little bit with uh pressure fermentation but i'm kind of in the same boat as denny um i would 
the the thing the one place i've been curious about trying to do is one of the things i wrote about a long time ago was about how to turn a beer around normal beer without pressure fermentation or anything else in like grain to glass in like five to seven days right and wow. i'm focusing on that but one of the other places where now that you mentioned doing ales with but i have a friend of mine who is absolutely pressure fermentation obsessed yep to the point where um my club's been doing these weekly happy hours and you know we bring on these brewers and we talk to them while we're drinking their beer it's a fun way to spend a friday on you know lockdown and it got to the point where he's so fermentation obsessed or pressure fermentation obsessed that i had to tell him he wasn't allowed to ask any pressure fermentation questions oh wow <laughs> but <laughs> but because he would ask every brewer so what do you what do you what do you think about pressure fermentation? Are you doing any pressure no, fermentation? Your brewery? No. <laughs> um, yeah, most commercial brewers are like hmm, no. Yeah, um, exactly. They don't have the the, the means to do it. Yeah, no. I mean, you know, and they if they need to turn around a batch quickly, they have other ways of doing it, like like Drew was saying, you know. Yeah, but um, but I will say the one place where that he was starting to play with that I'm actually curious to see what results he gets is doing pressure fermentation with need. And trying to turn trying to turn meat around faster because i don't really see a lot of advantage in trying to turn around say a lager any faster or yeah. or even a nail any faster but if you could turn around a mead faster i'd be curious yeah, yeah so the reason why i do pressure fermentation one uh is because my family drinks it all all on me um <laughs> i think you need a new family I need or start charging them for it um yeah. <laughs> two uh is I like having uh, a variety on hand. So in case I want to share with other people, I can say, Hey, this is what I have. Let me know. And I'll give you a couple bottles. And three is just having it ready for homebrew competitions mm -hmm. to say, Oh, I have this bottles gone done. Mm -hmm. and, you know, no, it's, and that's fine. I mean, I, I, but I do think that you need to start charging your family beer store prices. Oh, that's really <laughs> wow. I mean, I had a one family member say, look, we want to pay you what is all your ingredients, your time and everything else. I'm like, all right, I worked it all out. I wasn't trying to gouge anybody. And I said, all right, for $70, that's all your bottles, ingredients, uh, my time. It's all good. Next thing you know, eat my electronic money transfer, $150. I'm like, uh, yeah, it's, it's, the oh, no. I'm like, uh, they're like, Wait, oh, I did, God, I, you're I, committed. I, and they were like, don't read the message. It's like, okay, the, the $70 is for you. The rest is a tip for your helper. My helper is my dog. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what did he buy with his money? More beer for me. <laughs> good boy. That was, that was nice of him. Yeah, that's oh, a good yeah. dog. Earl's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> then again, he's 120 pounds. Who's going to argue with him? So I would say that if people want to get into experimenting, what they need to do is find out what they're curious about, right? What, yeah. what will make their lives better by knowing. And then they need to come up. I mean, we, we outline all this in experimental homebrewing. People look at that book and they think it's just all about weird recipes. Uh, that that, was that's my contribution. Fun. Yeah. Hey, man. Yeah. Weird's good. <laughs> my my part of it uh was like uh, more more of the scientific side of experimental how you go about doing the experiments and evaluating them so you know it's like you know you want to you want to try different ingredients then you have to like do a, a split batch and do two boils if you want to try uh, you know different yeasts or dry hops then it's easy to do a single batch and split that up and and do a couple different yeasts in it uh, but the main thing to do is is go through the whole process come up with a hypothesis so that you know what it is that you're going to be trying to find and then the really important part is to do a blind triangle tasting, you know, uh, confirmation bias is something that we all suffer from no matter what it is right. Uh, mm -hmm. one, one of my favorite experiments of when they gave kids uh, identical hamburgers, one in a plain brown bag, one in a McDonald's bag. And of course, all the kids preferred the hamburger in the McDonald's bag, although they were exactly, exactly the same. The same. Yeah. Adults are, are, are just like that with beer too. Uh, uh, only actually, only actually adults are worse because adults think they know better. 
Yeah. I mean, and it's like Adults we were talking idiots. about with it's like we were talking about with decoction earlier, right? <clears throat> people people say decoction makes a better beer. How much of that is because they did so much work that they want to believe that it makes a better beer? And again, it's a personal thing. You get to assess it for yourself. When you're doing your own blind triangle testing, you don't need to really worry about what anybody else thinks, right? You're making this beer for you. You just want to know what you prefer. And that's all that matters. But you really want to not be influenced by things that you know about. So it's like, you know, have somebody pour two glasses of one of the beers, one or the other, switch them around, and you pick up which you pick out which one you prefer. And that's all that matters. You're not trying to prove this to anybody else. You're trying to make beer that you like the best that can be. Awesome. So I'm going to ask you guys this. So for the listeners out there, if you guys want to give them a challenge for something to experiment with, what would you want to say? Go and try this. I would say get a hold of some really good craft malt. There are, oh, there are hundreds of craft maltsters across North America these days. So go get some craft malt and then use the, the same big commercial malt that you normally use and make the same beer, but with two different kinds of malt and learn about the, the difference that a, a good craft malt can make in the flavor of your beer. Okay. Denny is trying to push, uh, you know, make malt great again. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's, it's one thing. I mean, you know, hops have been getting all the love. Hops are sexy. And now there's a whole bunch of new cool things being done with malt that people probably haven't experimented with or experienced yet. So if I was going to encourage somebody to go out and do an experiment, I would say, start with that because that's something okay. that probably you haven't played with yet. Yeah, we, we've spent the past two decades in craft brewing, stripping malt out of our beers on purpose. <laughs> it's, time, it's time to put a little bit back in. Yeah. Um, I've, I've been struggling trying to strip the hops out of my freaking freezer. I've been given so many. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, boy, I know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's homebrew problems. And for me, what I would like to, what I would suggest people do, just because this is my own personal bugaboo, and it's something I've talked about for years. So uh, I'm a Saison guy, right? Huge surprise. The beer I make more often than anything else is Saison. Um, and I have for years have uh, told people, you know, go and do uh, your DuPont strains. So your YU3724s, your WLP565s, and do those with open fermentation. Uh, because, you know, the big thing that people complain about with those strains is, oh my God, you, 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 you get into the fermenter, it starts fermenting like gangbusters, and then it gets yeah. to like 1030 and stops. And you got to wait two, three weeks before it, before it tries to finish out. Um, if you do it open fermentation, I maintain, you don't see the same problem. And so when we've done that experiment in the past, all but one of our testers or one of the people who's done that experiment saw no uh, fermentation stall with the uh, the open fermentation as opposed to the closed fermentation. Okay. The only one who did, uh, didn't see the stall was Marshall Schott of Brewlosophy. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he, uh, it, but he also at the same time kept pulling his airlock to check the, check the gravity. Um, but I, I, uh, I would, yeah. And, and by the way, I would also say in general, if I could, if I could promote to people one technique that they needed to try more and, um, and one process change to try more to see what sort of difference it makes in their beers. I would suggest more people try doing open fermentation. There's good. a good number of strains out there, you know, whether uh, like the classic yep. Pilsen strain, okay. a lot of the British strains, even a lot of these Belgian strains that do wonders under open fermentation conditions. See, the only one that I know of for yeast that you could do open fermentation is what, Ringwood? That's the only one I really know of. Well, yeah, no, yeah. Right? the classic Pilsner, classic Pilsner or Kell yeast it was. Uh, was trained up essentially on open fermentation. They were doing open fermentation for years there. Uh, anchors uh, strains, so like American Liberty Two, or sorry, American Ale Two, and the California Common strains. Those are okay. open fermentation favorite. Wow! Almost every British strain that you can think of, at some point in time when it at least started, was probably conditioned for open fermentation. So, yeah. Okay. It's so, scary. so it's I would I would love to do that, but again, kids. I mean, they're mm -hmm. a, lot, a lot bigger, but then again, I'm dealing with teenagers who are like, just don't pay attention to what they're doing. And um, mm -hmm. I have three dogs. So the last thing I need is to have a dog getting drunk on, on wart 
or on beer that's in a bucket somewhere. Uh, my solution to that is I have chihuahuas. They can't get into the buckets. Oh, wait. So, so, so I, I have a chihuahua. Trust me, she is squirtlier than all get out and finds any way to get into something. I have a chihuahua pug mix and she's just as loopy as the chihuahua. And then there's Earl, the big, the big guy. And he just goes where he wants to go. So, you know, whatever. Yep. No, but trust me, open fermentation sounds scary to people, but it's, it's really not. I mean, okay. like if you're if you're in a bucket, you know, for instance, you know, just you'd said earlier that you put saran wrap over the top of your first bucket. You know, you, you could do something like that or just put foil over the over the thing. Yeah, you do want it in a place where you're not going to get a big draft or yeah. possibly a, a big galump, galumping yeah. by and knocking. And the then, and then the, the other important aspect of that is once the croissant falls, you want to seal your fermenter up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Open fermentation. Oh. Uh, open fermentation technique is not a uh, is not a technique for somebody who's lazy. Uh, or I should say lazy enough that what you want to do is walk away from the beer for two weeks and then come back to it. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. It, it does take some attention. So yeah. you know, not much. If, if, no, but if you're the kind of person who likes to babysit your beer, then that's a good thing for you to try. Uh, and again, this would be a good time to like split a batch into two fermenters yeah. ferment one open ferment one, your normal way, and then compare and see what you think. That's a good. That's a good idea. Um, have you guys done any experiments with temperature control? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, to to some degree. Although you know, I have to admit that I decided personally a long time ago that I like starting beer is pretty cool. Probably more so than most people. Any place from fifty five to sixty three degrees Fahrenheit is where I start most things. Oh, okay. Um, so, you know, uh, that's, again, I've learned that for my tastes, that makes the beer that I like best. Okay. Okay. How about you, Drew? Yeah. Uh, and again, you know, playing, playing with uh, my Saison theme, I've done experimentation with temperature control in different ways on the Saison yeast. So, because everybody, everybody talks again with the Dupont strain, crank that sucker up, you know, get the, you know, pitch it and let it go all yeah. the way up to ninety-five degrees. It's the only way it's going to ferment out. Um, and I, one experiment I did when I did a massive yeast strain experiment back in, God, that was like two thousand ten. Good lord. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I did, I did like eighteen batches of wort from a professional brewery and uh, all sorts of different strains in them. And then two, I pitched with the uh, the Dupont strain, so the mm. five sixty five from uh, White Labs, and one I held at ambient, and I started it the way I always do, which is cool, mm. and then let it come up, but control that rise, because my preferred method is to go in at about like sixty two to sixty four for the first two to three days, yep. and then let it run up, um, just to control the formation of esters and phenols at that uh, that early stage, and then I put the other one, I put a brew belt on, you know, the heating belts. Yep. And I ramped that sucker straight up out of the out of the chiller up to about 85 degrees Fahrenheit and pitched it straight away and let it run. And, you know, which is what a lot of people advocate, right? right. You know, a lot of people are advocating like, oh, you know, pitch, pitch the word, like pitch the yeast in when it's like 75 degrees and then just let it go, right? So I just, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, you could tell a difference. You could really, really tell a difference. And I will tell you right now, if you liked drinking the beer that was uh, around the brew belt, I worry about you, bud. <laughs> see i don't yeah. have that desire <laughs> see i i mean i have seen too many people uh say uh, crank it up to 85 degrees when you're doing with kvikes and things like that i'm like well that's you're putting it to the point where you're gonna stress it beyond belief i don't like, personally i don't think kvike was meant to really get that high i mean i understand between 75 and 80 is maybe the max limit and that way you avoid any of the the um the esters and and, poly, and the phenols whatever whatever all the bad stuff that comes out when yeah when right you're stressed so and, and 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 that's me i mean like you said it's all i guess all personal preference to what you what you're looking for uh i mean i, mean, I like british beers i like I like german beers and uh, kind of like uh, having very clean and very easy drinking Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's the beauty of home brewing. We're brewing for our own tastes. Uh, one of the, the many reasons that I would never be a commercial brewer is that you're brewing what other people want to drink, not what you want to drink. You know, you're satisfying uh, the customers 
who will then give you money, which will then satisfy the board of directors, but it may not satisfy your soul, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I, when I brew, it's firmly a hobby. I'm brewing for me. I'm brewing for my wife. And if my friends happen to like what I make, that's great. Uh, I'm, it's an honor for me that, that they'll uh, <laughs> deign to drink my beer. But, you know, I, I don't have to worry about what other people are going to like. I'm doing it for me. Yeah, and then, of course, you've got Dan's problem where, you know, it doesn't matter what he brews. His family just wants to drink it anyway. <laughs> yeah. Pretty it's, much. It's quantity. Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, I've, no, I've done like almost 20 gallons worth of oat beer that I've only seen five gallons out of it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, then there was like 15 gallons of Pilsner, lemon drop Pilsner I did. And then a few things of Porter. Uh, I didn't see any of the cerveza I made. So what, what kind of system did you brew on, Dan? So I have a, a Gen 3 RoboBrew and with the, which has been fantastic. And I've been kicking the ever living shit out of this thing and uh, it's still going, but then I also use two of the uh, firmzillas to ferment with. And that way, cause they're plastic. I just get the pressure kits for them term done, but I am waiting for my very first stainless steel fermenter to come. I'm waiting. Right. For, I'm getting a, a flex plus sent to me. Cool. cool. So I'm waiting to try that bad boy out. We're uh, we're grandfather guys. I've been using uh, the the G70, which is the 15 gallon unit. The big bugger. And yeah. And we each have uh, three of the three of the grandfather jacketed conicals and a glycol chiller to to do them with. Um, I love the G70. I mean, I can I can crank out 15 gallons of beer in four hours. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, for somebody you know that for somebody who's like in your situation you know, that kind of thing is great because you can you can brew a lot and make big batches every time you just got to figure out a way to ferment them uh for for me i love the design of the g70 which is why i love to brew on it but one of the issues is that it almost makes too much beer for just me here yeah yeah it, that, that's one thing i do miss about uh pre-pandemic times is uh, you know you were joking about you got to see like five gallons out of your 15 gallons when I uh, during pre-pandemic times and we'd have beer festivals and whatnot, it was not uncommon for me to brew a batch of beer and maybe get like you know say a six pack out of it, and then take the rest <laughs> over to a festival. Yep, and and that was perfectly fine with me because I'm like Denny. I'm less interested about you know necessarily having a lot of beer on hand as opposed to having a chance to play around and make new beers. Yeah, and that's what I like to do. I like to try try something i'll find a recipe i'm like okay i see what they're doing i'm gonna change it completely and use totally different stuff i mean I'll, i may use the same quantities of certain things but other than that no i'm, I'm changing it completely see what it does <laughs> you know man one of the things that really drives me crazy is when somebody says like you know i, I brewed your rye ipa recipe but i had to make a few changes based on what i had on hand like i didn't have any rye malt so i left that out and i didn't have any columbus hops so i used citra instead you know and it's like fuck you didn't brew my recipe you made yours <laughs> yeah. Yeah, by the uh, by the way this is the uh the beer equivalent of all those recipe bloggers where you see like hey you know i i made this recipe by substitute this this and that and then my husband hated it yeah right. uh i wonder why yeah exactly <laughs> yeah you know boys thank you very much for doing this i greatly appreciate it we have come to the end of our hour together and i can honestly say i haven't laughed this hard in a long time Thank yeah, you. I'm not, oh, that's good, I'm not sure we actually talked about the topic you wanted us to talk, talk about, but who gives a fuck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's homebrewtainment. Exactly. <laughs> Boys, thank you very much. <laughs> Guys, you got to check them out. Experiment Brewing. Uh, they have their website. You have uh, Instagram. There's Facebook, uh, YouTube. Check them out completely. It is honestly one of the coolest things you will do. And be like SpongeBob, absorb, enjoy, and, and, and go buy our books. And buy yeah. their books. Definitely buy their three, books. There's three of them. Three of them. There's experimental brewing, there's homebrew all stars, and simple homebrewing. There you go. 
Guys, we've had Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham on the show, two of the most beer-famous guys I could possibly get on the show. And, boys, thank you very much for doing this. And uh, we'll, we'll do it again sometime down the road. You Thanks know for asking, Stan. So I'd like to say thank you to Drew and Denny for being on the show this week. I haven't laughed this hard in a very long time while talking to people who I felt like were friends for a long time. Go check them out on Instagram, check them out on Facebook, on their website, I think they even have Twitter, and they also have a bunch of books that you need to check out, so listen to the, listen to the show, and they all mention their books. Guys, thanks a lot for the, taking the time to talk to a relatively new home brewer, it is really appreciated, and once again folks, thanks for tuning in for a beer or two along the way, and one more time around the sun, see you on the other side.